right, Psalm 50 is where we pick up this evening, and here we get mentioned that on the prescript of this psalm, the opening, it tells us that it is a psalm of Asaph. And we know that Asaph from the Old Testament was a musician, as well as it seems a songwriter and a musical worship leader. And again, just beautiful to see how we have this book of Psalms, this uh, Jewish hymnal, as many people call it. And we have some from the sons of Korah. We have many, as we see, from David. One's here from Asaph and different individuals, but just beautiful to see how the Spirit of the Lord was able to give different individuals uh, a word from God from time to time to compose a song, to put together one of these beautiful Hebrew uh, poetic psalms that we have that have become a part of our scripture and minister to us so beautifully. And we'll see this psalm, Psalm 50, is basically a psalm portraying God as, as a rightful judge. And I think a lot of times we like to think about God and his love and God and his kindness and God and his grace and compassion, and certainly he is. Uh, But because God is good and God is holy and God is righteous and God is also just, uh, God is also a judge, and he's a good judge. He's a righteous judge. That is, he always gives fair and equitable judgment. And even when God someday will be forced, and I, I do use that term, forced, to bring judgment, upon the whole world at one point in time, the Bible tells us in the the prophetic books that that judgment is God's strange work. In other words, it's something that's strange to him because it's not what his heart wants to do. God desires that man would love him and walk with him and experience his plan and purpose, but because man also, by God's love, has been given a free will, men do rebel against God and we turn from him. Uh, And we do things that are only displeasing to God, but destructive to our own lives and harmful and destructive in the world as sin continues to grow and has its influence. And there comes a point in time where a a good judge, a just judge, will properly punish, right, criminal offenses. If someone commits legitimate crime, it's only a good judge that would properly, to some degree— punish that crime with an appropriate sentence or form of punishment or judgment. That's what a good judge would do, a righteous judge. And so there comes a point in time, God measures time morally when God in his goodness must judge. And there have been times throughout history when God has done that. In the days of Noah, there's times when God did that with the nation of Israel. And there are times still that God does that, I believe, in uh, you know, certain measured ways from time to time. And there's a time ultimately when the great judgment of God is coming in the very last days when Christ returns as well. But Psalm 50, we'll see, kind of portrays God in this light. It's almost as if he takes us into the courtroom here where uh, everyone is there present and, and the judge walks in. And it tells us here in verse 1 of Psalm 50, the mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken. And called the earth, it says, from the rising of the sun to its going down. So the picture here is showing God in his strength. The psalmist refers to him as not only God the Lord, but he calls him as he opens the psalm, the mighty one. A picture of God in his strength, that he's the almighty God, a God of great power. And that as he walks in, it's almost as if court is called to session. It says he has spoken and called the whole earth. So everyone is called to witness. Again, all the earth is accountable. There's no one who is not accountable before God because God is the creator of all. 
And so every breathing soul, every human being over all the earth one day is going to have to stand before God to some degree to give account for their life. And so here God, as he comes in, this you know, mighty God, this judge who's coming in, he calls the whole earth together and it says, notice, from the rising of the sun to its going down. So the picture there is kind of from east to west. The idea is the span of all the earth. There are none who are excluded, none who get special exceptions. And that's a very wrong idea, a false mindset to think somehow that we can have an exception when it comes to accountability before God, before our creator, to judge and to evaluate our lives. We're all going to give account to him at some point. There's going to come a day, again, perhaps even when he talks about the rising of the sun to its going down, that also could be illusion. The idea is, is that you know, from the rising of the sun to its going down, that's how we would kind of measure a day. That is, there's coming a day. There's a day of judgment. Right now, the Bible tells us that this is the day of God's grace. This is the day of salvation. That's why the Bible says, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. That if you hear his voice, today's the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Don't harden your heart. Don't forestall because now's the day of salvation. But eventually that day of salvation, the sun's going to set on that. It's going to come to a close and we're going to transition into the day of the Lord which is a day when then God is going to begin to interrupt human history when Christ returns and put his plan into motion in the last days. So verse two describes him kind of coming upon the scene in his power. He says, out of Zion, which we said before is a description of Jerusalem. And look at the way the psalmist describes Jerusalem. He calls it the city perfection of beauty. Again, this special city, the city of Jerusalem, the epicenter spiritually of the whole world from God's perspective. And, and always remember that, you know, f- from God's divine perspective, the epicenter of the world and civilizations is not Washington, D.C. It's not Moscow. It's not London. It's Jerusalem. From God's perspective, the epicenter of this earth is Jerusalem. So always keep your eye on Jerusalem, what's happening in Israel and Jerusalem, because from God's plan unfolding that is the perfection of beauty that's the epicenter where god is going to bring things to pass so he says there verse two out of zion the perfection of beauty god will shine forth and one day that is going to happen because when jesus returns the light of the world and he sets up his throne there literally the light of god is going to shine forth as christ reigns there in jerusalem and zion he says verse three our god shall come notice and not keep silent. The idea is he kept silent for a great amount of time, forestalling his judgment, restraining, being long-suffering, patient, slow to wrath. But there's going to come a time where it seems like God has been silent. Well, if God's real, then why doesn't he do anything? It doesn't seem like God's done anything yet. And he says there's going to come a time when God's silence is going to break. And he says, notice verse 3, a fire shall devour before him, and it shall be like a very tempestuous all around him. So the picture here is like this strong, tempestuous storm and like a devouring fire when the presence of God comes in his judgment. The Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. And so it's nothing to trifle with, to stand before God, to be held account in judgment before him. Verse four, he tells us, he shall call to the heavens from above, And to the earth that he may, notice, judge his people. Gather my saints together to me, God says, as the judge. Those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. 
Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. And the psalmist says, Selah, or consider that. Think about that, that God himself is judge. And notice where God's judgment begins. Where God's judgment actually begins, God says the first individuals who I would hold to account for anything are not the unsaved, ungodly world who are blinded in the darkness, who have rejected me and don't know any better. But he says he's come to bring judgment to judge his people. Verse 5, he says, gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Now here, obviously, God's referring specifically, directly to the nation of Israel. And there have been numerous times where God has brought judgment, as we've seen, upon the nation of Israel as we studied even this far through the Old Testament, that God holds them to account because they are his chosen people, his, his nation who has been set apart. And when they would turn against God, when they would enter into idolatry, when they would turn from the Lord, when they rejected the Sabbath years for all the time that they did, God sent them into Babylon for 70 years as a form of his judgment. And here God says that he is going to hold account and bring to judgment his people because they've made a covenant with him, but they broke that covenant. And so God being righteous, therefore, exercises judgment from time to time in their lives and demonstrates that he's going to hold them account. Why? Because they have greater light, right? They have greater knowledge. They have a, God gave to them everything possible. God gave to them the law. God gave to them the priesthood. God gave to them the sacrificial system, the covenant of Abraham, the covenant of David. God's given to them so many things. God gave to them the Messiah. And yet, sadly, many times they rejected the light and privileges that God gave to them spiritually. So God has held them to account, and ultimately, God is still going to hold them to account because even the tribulation period itself, understand, is that last seven-year period after the church, true Christians, you and I, are raptured or caught away, removed off of this earth instantaneously, the Bible says. And that seven-year period begins, the Bible calls that seven-year period the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob referring to Israel. That is that seven-year period, among other things, is a time where it is one last seven-year period where God will specifically and uniquely be dealing with the nation of Israel, continuing to sort out a few more things with them as a nation during that time and holding them to account for some of the errors and things that they've done, ultimately to where God will reveal to them, as Zechariah tells us, that they will look upon him, Jesus, the one whom they have pierced. And they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only son when they realize, oh my goodness, you were the Messiah. And we missed it. And, and, and God will ultimately hold them to account for these things nationally. Now, that being said, Peter picks up on the same idea in the New Testament because in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says the time has come for judgment to begin. And what does he say? At the house of God. <laughs> The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. That is, though we may not be judged to experience the wrath of God eternally and be banished into hell, that was settled when we put our, our faith in Jesus Christ and we were taken out from under the wrath of God eternally. But yet that does not mean that God will not discipline and judge and hold to account his people, you and I who have light from the Lord and who have the word of God and have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And we as well, to a degree, have a covenant with the Lord made by sacrifice, as he refers to there in verse 5, you and I as well are also referred to as his saints from a New Testament perspective. 
So in a way, this has application to us also, that, that God holds us to account because God expects more from us, right? We know the truth. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We're illuminated internally by the Spirit of God, and we have the Word of God. And so when we begin to err and, and are negligent spiritually or just flat-out rebellious, and we transgress and we turn away from the Lord, uh, God's going to hold us to account for that. Uh, and the Bible tells us there are times when God will even bring discipline to a degree and a measure of judgment to his people to awaken us for the error of our ways uh, and that he holds us accountable in his righteousness as well. So he says, verse seven here, now calling them to account, he says here, verse seven, notice, oh, my people. So again, this is a message. God's first concern is I want to speak to my people. You know, the, the world knows no better. Uh, the world is living in, in open rebellion, open defiance. But he says, I'm, I want to speak to my people. Hear, O oh my people, and I will speak, O oh Israel, and I will testify against you. So it is interesting. God is both the judge and he's the prosecuting attorney here because he's so righteous he can do that. <laughs> and what's more interesting, what does the New Testament tell us? That Jesus is our advocate. He's our defense attorney. Imagine that. You know God's a mighty God when he can be the judge, prosecuting attorney, and defense attorney all at the same time. And the case is settled perfectly, and nobody can dispute it. So he says, here, oh, my people, I'm going to testify. I'm going to bring my accusation against you because I am God, your God. And, he, and look, here's what God's concern is. Look, very interesting what he brings to their attention, what bothered him. This was their grievance that, that they had caused towards God. This was their error that he's holding them to account for strongly. He says, verse 8, I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually, yeah, it is constantly before me. So there was no lack of offerings being made and sacrifices. He says, I will not take a bull from your house nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, God says, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, he says, verse 12, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all its fullness. And then God says, will I eat the flesh of bulls? In other words, is God literally needing an offering or sacrifice to, to be fed, to be sustained? Does God need the actual flesh uh, of, a, of an animal, he says, to be sustained for food if he's hungry somehow or drink the blood of goats? And really what God is indicting them for here, you can tell, is not that they weren't worshiping and bringing sacrifices and going through spiritual routines in a committed way, because clearly they were doing a lot of that because verse eight, God says, I'm not rebuking you for your sacrifices and your offerings, which are continually before me. In other words, they were very faithful, very devoted in all of their religious routines. They were bringing their sacrifices. They were bringing their offerings. They were doing all of the spiritual motions and routines. They were, in a sense, you might say, kind of following the letter of the law. But the problem was it was all ritualism. There was no heart behind what they were doing anymore. 
And as Jesus speaks about, there are times where we can honor God with our lips and our hearts can be far from him. In other words, we can be saying all the right things. We can be doing all the right things. And this is what Israel was doing is they were bringing their sacrifices. They were attending the synagogue services. They were listening to the reading of the law and the sermons and things that would be shared by the rabbi. They were praying their prayers. But sadly, it was all dead ritual. It meant nothing to them personally anymore. There was no heart behind it. It was just empty, routine, religious behavior where they were bringing their offerings, going through the motions, if you would, and it was just mechanical worship, and that disgusted God. It dishonored him because it was just going through the motions, and there was no meaning or heart behind it, and God sees what's going on in the heart, right? And this is what God's addressing here is God saying, do you really think I actually need the animals? I mean, do you really think that? I, do you really think my primary goal is I ask you to bring me burnt offerings and sacrifices because I, I get hungry and I can't go out in the forest and get myself a meal? Do you really think I actually I, I, I worked in your life and I made you my people just to get work out of you, just to get service out of you? God's trying to indicate that's not what I wanted. I wanted relationship. God says the whole world is mine. I don't need, if I needed something, God said, I would just take care of it myself. Do you really think I would tell you? And what God's trying to impress upon them is how disappointed he was that they had lost the heart behind the worship that they were performing. And I'll tell you, this is a very convicting thing because all of us can become guilty as saints, as the people of God, even to what Israel was doing in this very day as well. We all know, for to be very honest with ourselves in a way of assessment, that we can from time to time, right, just kind of get into the formality of our spiritual activities. And look, don't get me wrong. They're good disciplines. I'm not doing anything wrong. I get up in the morning. I get a cup of coffee. I read my Bible every single day. I pray every single day. But if I'm not careful, that, like anything else, can just become almost a, just a, a routine, just a religious routine. It's an activity, just kind of checking the box. And, and all of a sudden, your heart can just kind of become so familiar and routine. It just becomes formalism and ritualism, and there's no heart in it anymore. And, and that's when something starts to happen, and there's a disconnect there. We can do the same thing. You know, we, going to church Sunday, going to church Wednesday night. We can go to prayer meetings. We can sing the songs. But yet we can kind of get into this place sometimes where our heart begins to kind of just cool off and we're just going through the, the the mechanics right of familiarity and worship so many times we when we're praying on wednesday nights before the church service and sundays before the church service often that will be a part of what we're praying is is lord you know help us we don't want to just we don't want to just hold a meeting tonight I know often I'm compelled to pray that. Other times others will pray that. Lord, we, we, don't, we don't want this church service today. We don't want it to just be a meeting, a religious meeting. And, and right, we can easily do that. We just we kind of get used to hey, push that button at this time and pull that lever and this, that, and how many songs and sit and stand. And we can kind of just do that. And we always pray, Lord, help it not to just be a meeting. Instead, we want to meet with you, God. God, we really believe you're among us and you're with us. And we pray that we would have an encounter with you in this gathering. 
that you would meet with us and we would meet with you and truly each person would be experiencing your presence and the ministry of the Spirit would be happening in a beautiful way. I can tell you this, this is why a number of years ago uh, we transitioned kind of our Wednesday night service to be a little bit different in the format and flow than the Sunday morning service, where Sunday morning we usually sing a few songs, predominantly most of the music on the front end, then we do a few announcements, teach the word, and just kind of a final closing song. And, and, and I just thought to myself, you know, perhaps if we did something maybe just a little bit different on Wednesday evening where we just sing a few songs, then we go right in the Bible study and we do the bulk of our worship and singing and praying on the backside of the Bible study, being responsive to the Lord and worshiping and praying in a way whereby what is the spirit of God just communicated to us? What have we heard? What's he doing in our hearts? And then we're not worshiping just to, to be worshiped. We're worshiping kind of in a responsive way and just, and kind of, we never try and plan out what happens on a Wednesday night at the end, just to kind of just let it happen the way it happens. And, and part of the heart behind that was just to help with this thing of not getting into kind of that rut of routine and just religious formality, because you know that's not good for us, and it certainly, as we can see here, something that's not pleasing to the Lord. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus addressed the church of Ephesus for this very mistake. He said, you're doing a lot of great things there. You're hardworking, you got this activity and that activity, and you got all these things going on. I mean, it was like a well-oiled machine, and churches can be like well-oiled machines. I mean, they have more programs than the Elks Club, than the community center. I just spoke to a pastor recently and said, I just can't keep up with all the programs my people want to do. And I said, well, there's part of the problem. You're either going to be a pastor or you're going to be a cruise director. If you're called to be a pastor, then your primary goal is to pastor and help people's spiritual health and condition with the word of God and prayer and counseling and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and, and doing and leading the congregation in those things that are going to help them develop spiritually. You may not win the funnest man of the award year. You may not be like a great cruise director. And that's why, you, you know, if people want to do nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but again, you can have this well-oiled machine, but everyone's heart's disconnected. Remember, that's what happened in Ephesus. Jesus said this one thing I have against you. You've left your first love. That's the same idea as right here. You've left your first love. He said, repent, go back, do the first works. Because we can be doing the same thing and our heart's in it. And I know I can also be doing the exact same routine and my heart's totally not in it. And so this is what God was addressing to them. It truly mattered. He says, your offerings are before me continually. But he says, I don't want a bull from your house. I want your heart, God's saying. I'm not looking to get something out of you. I mean, he, he goes so far as, look, I own a cattle on a thousand hills. All the birds of the mountains, he says, the wild beasts of the field, they're all mine. He says, verse 12, the whole world is mine in all of its fullness. And so important that we do remember that reality, that God did not primarily save you to get work out of you. He didn't save all of us to just get a cheap labor force. He saved us to be sons and daughters to have relationship with us. Certainly work and service flows out of relationship, but that's the way it's to happen. Never to invert the order. Work, listen, work and ministry should never be a substitute for worship. And this is a very tricky, slippery slope for people sometimes. Oh, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. Right, but, but work is not a substitute for worship. 
It's out of a life of worship and relationship that then you want to serve the Lord and you give yourself. God's not just looking for work. He's looking for relationship. He's not looking to get things from us. And I I tell you, these are great verses to always remember how much God possesses. He's the owner of all and that God is not looking to get from us primarily in our lives. He doesn't even need anything from us. I mean, if these verses couldn't say it more clearly, that that everything is his, the cattle on a thousand hills, all the birds of the mountains, all the wild beasts, God says, verse 12, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I wouldn't even tell you. Now, there are some Christians that will tell you that God's hungry, and they'll tell you that God's broke, and they'll tell you God needs your money. But God says, I would never tell people I need money because I don't need your money. The whole world is mine. If I need some money, God says, I'll sell some of my cattle. And then I'll get the proceeds because they're all, it's all mine. The whole world's mine. God's a great fundraiser. He really is. He has amazing ways because he just owns everything. And he's very wealthy to do what he needs to do and where he guides, he provides. And God says, I don't even have to tell people. Because God just tells people, listen, God just tells people privately in their heart And something happens in a worshipful way where then people in a cheerful way without being compelled or pressured or hearing of the need, they they just have a sense of, I believe the Lord wants me to do this. And then what is it? It's giving as an act of, here it is, worship. It's an act of worship. And then they do it with a genuine heart of worship. And so important to remember this, you know, God is not broke. God has all the resources because he owns everything. The whole world is his. And God says, I would never tell you if I needed anything because I'm self-sufficient. He's a self-existent God. It's a privilege for us to give to God because we're just giving back to God, right? If it all belongs to him, then really I'm not giving. He's not getting something that's not his. I'm, I'm giving back to him what's already his, just as a relational act of appreciation. Lord, thank you for what you entrust with me. And so, Lord, I want to give something back to you as an act of surrender and and show you my love and dedication towards you. Notice verse 14. Here's the offering God was looking for. God boils it down. Offer to God, verse 14, what? Thanksgiving. Be grateful, God says. Be appreciative that I own everything and I let you have some and that you have the privilege to be able to just live in gratitude towards me and that you would offer to me gratitude. The Bible tells us in the New Testament in Hebrews to offer to God the sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks unto our name. And that's a sacrifice sometimes to give God praise, to be thankful to God because a lot of times we feel like we want to complain or this or that and God says, here, let me encourage you. Try this sacrifice. Just be thankful and praise me no matter how you feel or what your circumstances are, just be thankful for the things of who God is and what you can be thankful for. So he says, offer to God thanksgiving, pay your vows to the most high. So that speaks of faithfulness. Be a dedicated person. If you commit to something, you make a vow or a dedication to God in some way. He says, follow through, be faithful and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So God asks really for for three things there, you might say, in verse 13, or excuse me, verse 14 and 15, he says, be grateful, be faithful, fulfill your vows, and be dependent. Live in dependency upon me. Call upon me when you need something. Don't try and create it yourself, but call upon me in prayer and let me deliver you. And God says, the way it works is wonderful because he says, then, then you'll glorify me. And you'll just talk about how great I am and what I did and how I came through in your day of trouble and helped you. Verse 16, but the wicked, to the wicked, God says. Now, what's interesting here is it seems God's saying the wicked among my people. 
not just the wicked, but the wicked among my people. That is those who are supposed to be my people, but they're living wickedly. And so God says to the wicked, I say, what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? Seeing you hate instruction and cast my word behind you. When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother and you slander your own mother's son. Now, God here is identifying, and not just identifying, but you might fairly say as a good and righteous judge, he's indicting those who are claiming to be his people, who are supposed to be his people, the nation of Israel were his people. And God says here, but but yet among my people, there are those who are engaged in lying and and cheating and stealing from people. There are those, he says, who who are involved in, in sexual sin who are using their mouths in harmful and destructive ways, slandering people, using their words like swords to pierce people's souls and to backbite one another. And God says in verse 16, look what he says. He says, what right do you have to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth when you're doing these things? God says, if you're going to live contrary to the way I ask you to live, then why are you going around claiming that you're my follower and claiming that you follow my word when you don't. God's saying that's not very good advertising because ultimately who gets the bad rap? God does, right? (laughs) We all know that. That's who always gets the bad rap is we don't represent God properly. They didn't represent God properly. And what would the nations do? They would mock the God of Israel because of how the people of Israel live. And when you and I as Christians, that's the title that we predominantly go by the idea of christian when it first appeared in the book of acts meant christ follower or little christ so we represent christ and when we don't represent christ in an appropriate way and certainly none of us are perfect but when we're willfully living in deliberate transgression and living completely contradictory in a pattern and lifestyle that is outside of the will of god and the word of god we are just totally dishonoring and ruining the reputation of christ And so God here kind of indicts those who are living wickedly as his people. He says, what right do you have to be declaring my statutes in your mouth? He says, verse 17, seeing that you hate instruction and cast my word behind you. Well, there's a certain pathway towards wicked living. He says, you hate instruction. The idea is you don't like when someone tries to offer you guidance, godly guidance good instruction that that is you you you, your heart begins to despise when someone tries to offer instruction to you and that is one of the things that the word of god does right paul says in the new testament writing about the word of god in second timothy 3 he says all scripture has been given by inspiration of god and is profitable for doctrine reproof correction and training in righteousness that the man and woman we may say of god can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so when someone tries to give us instruction based upon the word of God or offer us instruction to just give us some help and guidance in our life, we're not just disinterested. He says here, 
sometimes the heart can actually hate instruction because the heart is proud and the heart is hard. And we don't, we don't want someone to tell us what we're doing may be wrong or there's a right way to be doing something. And so we actually despise it. We're, we become hard-hearted towards it. We become upset and angry even when someone tries to give us instruction. And you can tell what the instruction stems from because he says, those who are doing this, he says, you cast my words behind you. The idea is you're throwing something behind you so you don't have to look at it. So you're just, just throwing it behind you as if it's worthless. What is this piece of trash? And you know, just taking, just casting it behind you. And he says, some people are doing that with my word, God says. They're just casting the word of God behind them. They're not looking to it as the lamp under their feet and the light on their path to walk towards as a thing they're trying to walk. But instead, they're just casting aside the word of God with disrespect rather than honoring and reverencing the authority of God's word, the truth and the inspiration of God's word. He says, verse 18, when you see a thief, you consent with him. The idea is you, you find it acceptable to steal in some way. And there are lots of ways to be a thief, right? It's not just somebody holding up banks or whatever. There, there are lots of ways that people can steal. Many times we want to dismiss little things, but look, stealing is stealing. In any way, we are taking something that does not rightly belong to us. That makes us a thief, biblically. It makes us someone who's taking something in a way that's not ours. And God says that's being a thief. It's robbing in some way, someone. He says, and you've become a partaker as well with adulterers. That is those who, you know, entering into sexual activity with those who are not their spouse or that is married to another person. And he says as well, not only sexual sin, but he says, you also give your mouth to evil. Again, isn't it interesting? We often think, oh, man, that person's a thief. They're an adulterer. God says, right, and your mouth's evil. And you love how, I love how God always does that. I love in the New Testament when God talks about, you know, robbers and murderers and Thessalonians, and then he says, and busybodies. Because, you know, yeah, murderers. I can't, a murderer. Who could murder someone? And, and God, right in the same list, God says, and busybodies. Because God says sin is sin. It's wrong. All those things can be equally destructive in their own different ways. And here God is upset, he says, with those who give their mouth to evil in different ways, that their tongue frames deceit. That is, they're speaking in ways that aren't honest. They're deceiving people. Maybe they're putting on a show. They're not giving an honest representation of you know, something that they know about. They're twisting the facts or they're manipulating the story or exaggerating the story. Lots of different ways that we can do that. He says, you sit and speak against your brother and slander your own mother's son. So again, there he speaks of using the mouth in a way that's just hurtful, slanderous, gossiping about someone else. Hey, did you hear about them? Did you hear about what they're doing? And just criticizing and complaining. Other people who are part of the family of God just in hurtful ways. So again, all these things oftentimes are things that we, you know, we, we want to use different words to describe everything. And, and that's what we're great at doing. Right? People, don't, people don't commit adultery, they have affairs. And you can pick any of those different things that I'm listing there. And, and, and you know, we, we, we use all these different terminologies for stuff because we want to soften things instead of just acknowledging that they're sin. And God says, no, they're just wicked. They're, they're wrong things that displease God. And he says, verse 21, these things you have done. And I kept silent. The idea there is God was waiting patiently. God was not interjecting and, and right away bringing the accusation. Now, again, that's just a testimony that God is long-suffering and God is patient. 
And this is where we oftentimes make a mistake as people is we, we live in a wrong way. And then worse, sometimes we start to persist in a pattern of wrongdoing, maybe some particular area of sin. And we start to not just, it's not just that we failed one time, but then we start repeating the failure. We start establishing a pattern of sinful behavior or some lifestyle or habit that we know is sinful and wrong in the sight of God, according to the word of God and, and, and God's silent for a season. And what God's doing is God's quietly, patiently, graciously, mercifully giving us a little bit of time to repent. And rather than dropping the hammer on us, God says, I, I, rather than shame you and come down hard on you, I'm a patient, long-suffering. I'm just, I'm just going to sit here quietly. And I'm going to be real quiet, so hopefully the quietness will help you recognize. We say sometimes, man, it's eerily quiet right now. right? But well, what happened with Saul? When Saul kept living wilder and wilder and crazier and crazier, do you remember what God ultimately did? Stop speaking to him. God went silent. God gave him the silent treatment. The idea was to get him to realize, oh my goodness, I haven't heard God's voice in a long time. And God was trying to awaken, even through silence. God sometimes is trying to testify something isn't right. If we're not regularly hearing the voice of God and we're living in some wrong way, sometimes that silence is meant to help us awaken to the reality that something's not good. But God says the mistake, verse 21, is you thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. God says the mistake you make oftentimes as human beings is, is he says, you think that I'm just like you as humans. And boy, that is probably one of the greatest errors we so often make because we see God personified in the word of God. But then sometimes we begin to take experiences that we have with other human beings and we translate that over into how we think about God. And we have to remember all the time that our experiences of the people should never be something where we take and we think, oh, well, because this person treated me like that or they behaved like that or they spoke to me like that, that that's how God's nature is. And I'll tell you one of the areas this happens probably more in a destructive way, I think, than any other areas in regards to the fatherhood of God. Because sometimes people don't have the greatest father figure in their life. Maybe they have a very absentee father or a very dysfunctional father or a very hurtful father and and it really creates confusion then with being able to embrace the fatherhood of god and what god is really like as a father and and i just want to caution you be very careful god even says here in his word he says look don't think that i'm like human beings don't don't do that you let the word of god speak for the nature of god don't take the way humans relate and how humans do things and how humans think because we're flawed, broken people, right? We're flawed, broken people. God says, I'm not like man. God's different. He says, I'm not like you. And he says, I will rebuke you. Though God was giving time, God was going to rebuke them and set in order before their eyes the error of their ways. And this is what God's saying. I might have been being patient, but it didn't mean I was approving. And that's the mistake we make. Oh, it doesn't seem like nothing's happening because this is what happens with children. And this is the tragedy that happens all the time. You watch a parent. I don't understand why my child is out of control. Well, let's pay attention what happens. They do something wrong. You say, Johnny, no. Then you do nothing. And Johnny keeps doing it. You say, Johnny, no. Johnny, no. Johnny, no. Johnny, no. 
Well, seven times you told him no. Do you know what Johnny knows? No don't mean nothing. It doesn't mean anything. A two-year-old can figure that out. Five-year-olds can figure that out. And they become ingrained in kind of this pattern. And the idea is they almost embrace, well, just because you say no or just because you get angry doesn't mean anything. You're not going to judge me or discipline me, so you must approve of my misbehavior. You just like telling me no. And God says, look, don't misinterpret my silence and my patience if you're doing what's wrong as if somehow I'm giving you an exception to the rule. Because I'll tell you, that is one of the biggest deceptions of the devil is a Christian begins to get ingrained in some lifestyle of sin and inappropriate habit or behavior. And because right away they don't see the consequence, the judgment, the discipline of the Lord, they start to think, well, maybe God understands I just have a weakness in this area. And so maybe he's just going to give me an exception to keep watching the pornography. Maybe he's just going to give me an exception to keep kind of you know, cheating or doing this little thing because he knows I'm having trouble paying my bills. And rather than ask him for help or, or do what's righteous or have integrity, I, I, maybe he understands I can kind of you know, do this thing to cheat the system and, and, and nothing's happened yet. That doesn't mean God approves it. It just means God's patient and God's giving time. So be very, very careful that, you, again, you don't translate these ideas of humans over to God. God says, verse 22, he says, now consider this, you who forget God. And the idea of forget is, is to put God behind you, that is to set aside. Not as if you can somehow, oh, wasn't there someone that you used to be accountable to? That's not the idea. <laughs> forget God, the idea is a, is a terminology of that you're choosing not to think about him. You're suppressing the truth because every man has a consciousness of the awareness of God. Romans 1 tells us that. He says, you who forget God, the idea is that you're not only putting God's word behind your back, you're setting God aside and trying to suppress the reality of your own conscience that God is speaking to you or that God's holding you accountable. Listen to this. He says, consider you who forget God. Strong language. God says, lest I tear you in pieces. Ouch. That sounds like a spanking. And there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. That is, I will let experience the, the saving power, the salvation of God in their life. Again, look what he comes back to in verse 23. What's the heart of the matter for God? It's the matter of the heart. That's what really matters to God. He comes back to here in verse 23. He says, whoever offers what? praise glorifies me we exist for the glory of god the bible teaches that romans revelation chapter 4 excuse me says that we were created for the glory of god that's why we exist as human beings that is the chief reason we have an existence as a person is to live for the glory of god and so god says whoever offers praise glorifies me and what else does god receive as worship when we order our conduct right that is when we keep short accounts with god and we start to err and make mistakes, which we all do, right? This is Wednesday. How many times have you messed up already since Sunday? Something you thought, something you said, some, you know, the way you behaved. And I mean, we, we struggle. We have a sin nature to order our conduct right. That is to keep short accounts with God and don't get way off the trail. Don't allow yourself to be 17 exits down the highway before you decide to exit off the highway of sin and destruction and ruinous behavior. Just get off the highway sooner. Recalculating, recalculating. You just, you know, take that spiritual GPA and get off sooner. 
order your conduct right. God says, I consider that worship. When someone says, you know what, Lord? Yeah, I just, I, I was off there. My heart wasn't right or what I did was wrong. And that you quickly keep short accounts with God and his Holy Spirit and you make things right and you bring it before the Lord and you accept his grace and you confess. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all righteousness. And God says, that's worship. Praising me and keeping your heart and your conduct right before the Lord. And that is exactly what David is going to show an illustration of. We'll see next time. Psalm 51, where he gives this beautiful explanation of dealing with the own sin and error in his own life. And again, I don't want to look at Psalm 51 on the tail end of another psalm just because it's such a beautiful and rich and fulfilling psalm. We'll look at it together next time. But why don't we do this? I want to glorify God tonight, so let's offer praise to the Lord. Let's stand, let's worship, let's offer some praise to the Lord as a way to glorify him. And if there's something perhaps God's Spirit's been speaking to you about, as one of his people that you need to order and make right before the Lord as we're responding to the Lord. Respond to him and ask him to help you get that right by his spirit and his help, and he will. Father, thank you. For